You're listening to a Flower Pop production. Hello, lovely people. How are you? I hope you're good and I hope you're ready for our next conversation. Now, here's a question for you Who are you really when you go to work? It's a myth that we put on a different suit when we, we might put on a different suit, we might put on different clothes, we might put on makeup, whatever we do. But our personality is still the same. And we can't just say, oh, I'll, I think I'll put this bit on the shelf and I'll insert that bit today because now it's Monday and I'm going to work. Gabriella Brown has more than 20 years of experience working as a therapist, not in a therapy room, but in workplaces and staff rooms. She helps bosses and their teams understand how and why we are the way we are when we go into the office. She's worked all over, including at the British Library, RADA, the University of Cambridge and the NHS. In this conversation, we talk about her first chapter in education, what to do if you've got a tricky person at work you just can't get on with, and what you should do if you're struggling when it comes to your career and have no idea what you want to do. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter. Or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Gabriella Brown. Gabriella Brown, welcome to the next chapter with Ellie Barker. I am so delighted and thrilled to have you here. I've got so much to talk to you about. So thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. So let's start, as we always do, with the prologue. Now, this is, I would say, this is one of the most, well, I, I want to, I would use the word exotic. I don't think that's the right um, word. But the, I have never seen all these places down for a prologue. So you, you're, you started off in Jerusalem, then you went to Bristol, Harlow, Dundee, Letchworth, Birmingham. I mean, that's quite a mixture, isn't it? So, how did, so obviously you were born in Jerusalem. I was. I was born in Jerusalem. My parents both went there when they were, my mum was 10 and my dad was 14 when they arrived. So they fled the Nazis and they went to what was Palestine. Wow. And, I, and they you know, grew up and lived there. And I was born there by that time it was Israel. Goodness me. And how old were you when you left there? Only 15 months when we left and came here. Okay, okay. And did you have brothers and sisters? I have had and have one older sister. Okay, okay. So so you you were born there. So that, I mean, and then, so actually, and I live in Bristol. So then you moved to Bristol. I mean, yes. that must have been, I, obviously you don't remember it, but that must have been such a change for your family. Yes, I, I don't remember it. I think it must have been quite a shock for the family, especially for my mum. My mum was very, very Mediterranean spirited and found the UK very difficult, cold, grey. The food at the time was pretty lousy. Mm. She found it really difficult. My dad never really adjusted to Israel. Um, and his family were in the UK by then. So for him, it was joining family. And it was, it, he felt more at home here than he did in Palestine and Israel. Mm. Whereas for my mum, there was no family and it was very difficult for her. Mm, I can understand that. And did your dad, did he have, a, did he have work over here? He got a job, I think in Bristol. He was an academic so he'd worked at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Um, I think that's what it's called. And he got a job at Bristol University and then he worked his way up. That was why we kept moving because right. he was making his way up the academic ladder. Okay. So then you moved to all the different places and so you went to secondary school in Birmingham. So by, yeah. by the time you're there, I mean, you said, which I find this hard to believe, Gabrielle, but you said you were sometimes a little bit badly behaved at school. But but were you? Were you and do you think that comes from moving around such a lot or just really you just perhaps were just a little bit of a rebel? I think I was probably well behaved when I was you know, in junior school, um, by the time I got, and I did last year junior school in Birmingham and then first year and then joined secondary and did all secondary school in Birmingham. 
Um, and by that time, I don't know if I was a natural rebel, but things were really difficult at home. My parents had separated when we were in Dundee. And then when we got to Birmingham, a few months after we got to Birmingham, they split up. And things were very difficult at home. My mother became terribly depressed. Um, and I think I played up because I was all over the place. I was a disturbed adolescent, actually, mm. and didn't know what else to do but behave badly. Mm. Well, this is obviously some of the work that you've gone into, which we, we will we'll go into. So you can sort of understand perhaps where it comes from. But also we will be talking about your, your fabulous book, which I'm just loving at the moment. Um, but you did like to write as a as a child. You know, as a, I think it was about seven years of age or, you, you know, you you loved it. But as you said, I heard you being interviewed on another podcast. And like you said, and this, dare I say it, we I've heard this a lot in this podcast, our education system. I mean, it's got a lot of good about it, but it can stamp out some of these passions because you don't fit quite into the academic structure and we're hearing this such a lot it's so sad isn't it i mean i loved writing stories when i was about seven and gradually it got completely stamped out of me and mm. i remember a level english i really liked the teacher but actually when i look back at it the teaching was terrible mm. it learn this, learn this, learn this, that you'll get asked this in the exam, wrote, learn that, wrote, learn that, you know, it was all about preparation for exam and nothing creative in it by then at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know I did the same and I absolutely understand. But you did go on to do English at university. I did and I didn't do well enough in A-levels because I was not doing well educationally. So I I um, failed most of my O-levels first time round, then I retook some, and I got two A-levels, not three. So I, I was doing badly mm. compared to what I was should have been able to do. Um, and I, So I couldn't have got in on it for English because it's very competitive, as you'll know. I think I got in on politics, to do politics. And it was Lancaster University, great university, and they had a great system where you did three equal subjects in your first year. And as long as you did well enough in them, you could go on and major in any of them. So English was one of my three. Wow. And I did well in it and I majored in it. So that was how I got into do English. Wow. That's... Thank you, Lancaster. Yeah, that's like, what a great university. And again, it goes to show a different kind of education system can bring such different results. This is this is the worry. I learned to learn at university and I really had not learned to learn at all. Mm. And university woke that up, taught me that and rekindled my love of literature I mean I'd always been encouraged to read there were always books at home so that that was always there but yeah doing English at Lancaster was was great mm. it's, I mean this is something I could talk to you about for a long time and I won't so I get distracted but you know I, I see it with friends now whose children are going through their GCSEs and again they get sort of disheartened if they don't fit into that or you know that certain and, and also so many different subjects and you can't necessarily be expected to be great at all subjects, but it can be so damaging because then you can think, do you know what, I'm no good and there's just no point trying and this is what it's going to be like for the rest of my life. And it's just simply not true. Exactly. And I mean, I took it all on myself. Mm. I thought it was all my failure and me being a bit thick. Um, I, I really thought I wasn't very bright. And it, it's horrible how children take that on themselves. Mm, it is. And look at what you've gone on to do. So you absolutely are extremely bright. But And what were you like uh, at school, away from the, you say you were a bit, bit naughty in that, but did you feel like there you fitted in uh, by the time you got to the secondary school or having moved around so much? Did I mean, did you feel settled and with everything that was going on at home? Did you have some good friends or what were you like? Sort of what was your personality like? At secondary school, I had a couple of very, very close friends. We were a trio and we were inseparable. Um, and interestingly, they both... I, I went to a comprehensive school which had 11 streams. It now seems extraordinary for a comprehensive <laughs> school. It was huge and streamed everything and everyone. Um so, and a lot of the children were from working class backgrounds. 
And very interestingly, my two best buddies both had academic fathers. Mm. And we found each other as we were slightly unusual in that school and we found each other and clung together. Mm. How lovely. How lovely. You found your tribe. Yes. So so then, so you went to university and you started off in your first chapter, you worked in, well, you actually sort of went into teaching, didn't you? So you worked as more like a, a teaching assistant in an adolescent unit. I, I w- in an adolescent unit, I was actually a nursing assistant oh, in London. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left university, got this job in this adolescent unit as a nursing assistant. And of course, again, with hindsight, what I was trying to do was actually repair my own adolescence, mm. which disturbed and disturbing. My mum, by this time, had been very ill, mm. was still very ill. Um, and that was really what I was trying to do. And I loved it, um, but I also, it was too much for me, because mm. I'd, I'd got too much of my own stuff going on to deal with some very disturbed boys at the adolescent unit. Mm. And I, so I, I, left but I had enjoyed helping the teacher and I kind of fell into education at first I ended up going back to Birmingham and I did some work in a home teaching service which I enjoyed and then I kind of fell into further education and in those days you didn't need a teaching qualification so and then by the time I thought of doing a qualification the vice principal of the college I was in he very helpfully said to me, it would drive you mad to do a teaching qualification now. Don't do it. Mm. To do something, do a master's in education. And is that what you did? I did quite a few years later, actually, but I did do that. I did a master's in education. That's interesting how, though, it's fascinating because all what you we were just saying about school and then there you are sort of going into education and teaching yourself because you obviously, I would imagine, felt, even if it was a subconscious thing, felt so strongly because, you know, you didn't necessarily have great teaching and then when you did have great teaching, it changed everything. You know, we pick these things because there is a link, isn't there? There's always a link back to what how we were as children. There is a link. And also I, what I left out of the previous chapter in secondary school I skived a huge amount really skived a lot and it was because I was in trouble Mm. in in emotional trouble and turmoil because things were really not at all good at home Mm. and I suppose if if a teacher had only picked that up rather than getting telling me off you know actually picked up that all was not okay yeah would have made a huge difference and then so so staying in that first chapter you ended up I understand did you you worked in Eastern Europe I did so I gradually worked my way from further education I worked um, for the further education unit which was like the quango for research and development for further education in the country Um, I worked for a national awarding body I became a head of department I got you know, so I was going into leadership roles now. Um, but what I found was I couldn't bring any of the different parts of me together. I had to either be a further education person or a warding body person or a staff training person. I also did staff training. And going off on my own, I could bring the different things together. That was one thing. The other thing was that my last job um, as a leader, I found it incredibly difficult I'd have no training, no preparation, there was no coaching, and I sort of wanted to get out of that. So those things combined to make me go off on my own, and then I was really lucky to get some work developing curricula in Eastern Europe, and I loved that. It was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Whereabouts were you? I did some work, and it was all in the early 90s, which is a show of my age, but it was when... Things were changing at enormous speed in Eastern Europe. So I did some work in Czechoslovakia and my dad was Czech, so obviously that meant a lot to me. And then I was there as the Czech Czech Republic and Slovakia separated. I was literally crossing the border as they were separating. It was a fascinating time in history. I did some work in Poland and in Bulgaria. Wow. So you really, I mean, that's so many different places. And were you doing the same kind of work, looking at the curriculums in all these different places? 
Um, it was all through the same company here who were doing work in Eastern Europe. And the two guys that ran it were ex-World Bank economists, so they knew their way around, they knew what they were doing, and they were brilliant, real integrity, fantastic work. So so from then, so then moving in then to your to your next chapter, so... I mean, to explain what you do now, and then obviously we'll, we'll go backwards to see how you got into it. But you are director of, you're the director of Working Well. Now, forgive me if I've got this wrong, but I think how how you explain it. So it's a consultancy and you use psychoanalytic and systemic thinking to go into companies and to, to help leaders. So really, you're using analysis, sort of th- what we perhaps the listeners would know more as like, therapy that kind of that kind of thing to go in and look at institutions and and you have done I mean you've been to uh, the British Library you've been to the Tate you've been to alcohol centres you've been to Cambridge University you've been to many many different places so I mean and you've written this amazing book which honestly it's such an eye-opener for somebody who's worked in a big company for for like 25 years I'm like oh my god this is and it which is called all that we are so how did you get into that work? Before we discuss that, how did you go then from where you were in Eastern Europe into this work? So where I was in Eastern Europe, I then started getting loads of work in this country, which took over from the Eastern European work. And it was all freelance and it was great, except that then it wasn't great because I was, because my awarding body background was called forget got loads of work signing qualifications, writing occupational standards, until in the end I thought, oh, God, I'm going to turn into a performance criterion. This isn't really what I want long term. So I made a deliberate move to change my kind of work. And long story short, I did some training, including a master's at the Tavistock in consulting to organisations, psychoanalytic approaches, When I signed up for the Masters, I also went in as a patient into psychoanalysis myself. And that completely changed. It was really transformative. It changed how I thought, changed how I work, it changed how I lived, actually. Mm. And that's how I got into that kind of work. And what what I knew I wanted was to... I had had my own experience in the workplace of things going badly wrong and of being a leader and not understanding what was going on when when things weren't working. I'd been through a major restructuring, et cetera, et cetera. We relocated, we restructured. It was textbook how not to do it. We lost loads of staff. Mm. That. And, I, and, and the emotions were running rife in the workplace, and I didn't understand half of it. So I knew I really wanted to understand what happened, understand the dynamics between people and understand why it was that, like me, people had such differing experiences. They could be, you know, I found as a team member, I I loved it often. the, The camaraderie of that was great. And as a leader, it was often awful and I didn't know how to do it. Mm. And, and I'm not the only one with those different kinds of experiences. So I really wanted to go deeper. As a staff trainer, although I really enjoyed training, I found it far too superficial. So I wanted to go deeper. And that's why I did the particular masters at the TAVI. And they strongly recommended that you were in psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic psychotherapy, which kind of gave me the permission I needed. Mm. Do that, and that, you know, I went for a consultation with what became my analyst, and he said, "Why are you here?" And I said, "Oh well, the Taffy highly recommends it for this masters." And he said, "Is that all? Is that the reason?" <laughs> of course he did. Of course he did, and I said, "No," and that was it. We forgot that the Taffy wanted yeah. it, and then I could actually acknowledge that I needed it. Yeah, yeah. Had you had any kind of therapy before then? No. That's yeah, interesting, isn't it? And how, so, this, oh, so much to talk about. How long did it take you to qualify to be able to go into com- in, into companies? Uh, well, the master's at the Tavistock isn't, you don't, you get a master's degree at the end, and that was two years. It do, You're not qualified into a professional sense. You don't get 
just to, to say, right, this person is certified to go into companies. So I was lucky because I'd ha had my own business for quite a long time before this. So I knew how to go about getting work. Um, but it was really, and also I'd done work with organisations through writing standards or designing qualifications or training. So I knew something about going into organisations. And what I did was madly change what I did with organisations. And I started doing that immediately after I got the master's. Mm, amazing. I mean, what I love, so starting off in the book, what I love, one of the first things you say is you say, you know, you go into a workplace and whatever it's like, for me, it's a newsroom, you know, any, you know, we're listening, wherever it may be, you go into your office and, but you take away, um, and there it is, there's your workplace. But then you take away the desks, the, the chairs, the computers, take all that away. And you're left with a group of people. And I, I found that really, that, you know, that really was such a an observant thing, which is so simple. But yeah, I've never thought of that. So that's what I think is amazing. And you're absolutely right. And there's all, we go in that as siblings, as parents, as as children, you know, of what we've been through when we were younger. And we take all of that with us. And that's how we present in the workforce, even though we all say, oh, well, you know, you're your professional self at, at at work and you're, but it's all there with you in, in the even if it's in the subconscious exactly that exactly it's a myth that we you know put on a different suit when we we might put on a different suit we might put on different clothes we might put on makeup whatever we do but our personality is still the same and we can't just say oh I'll, I think I'll put this bit on the shelf and I'll insert that bit today because now it's Monday and I'm going to work of course, we. there are things that we'll do at home that we wouldn't do at work and vice versa. But our personality is our personality. Our history is our history. And our triggers are our triggers. And they all come with us. Mm -hmm. And before we go into that, just going back to yourself. So the fact that you had your psychoanalysis and obviously you had, you know, you did have in some ways, um, you know, some a lot of difficulty there grow, growing up. And did you find that that then started to tell you some questions? You said it sort of changed how you lived your life. But did that answer some questions for you about how you were approaching work and about how you were living your life, really? Yes, it really did. Um, oh, in all sorts of ways, like that I had a real tendency to take on far more responsibility than was mine, because mm. kind of became responsible for my mum. There were all sorts of ways. I, I, I was very, I was hyper vigilant, checking out what was going on because I had to be like that at home. Um, if your parents, my parents were very traumatised. Mm. That creates a certain environment in, in the home. And children pick it up. Often it's not spoken and that makes it a stronger thing that you pick up. You just pick up the feelings, words that aren't said. Um, and you can't really make sense of it. So in my case, certainly I became hypervigilant to try and work out what was going on at any given moment. And I've also heard you talk as well, and this is something that I've sort of come across recently and trans, forgive me if I get it wrong, transgenerational trauma, but your family had been through horrific, horrific um, trauma with the, with the Holocaust. And that is, so that, for anyone who doesn't understand, um, who's listening, and forgive me if you do, but that is where it's sort of like a, a generation goes through an awful lot of pain and trauma, but they pass it on to the next one just because, you know, they're dealing with it and how they act. And then they, they you know, and it, so it can carry on living in you, even though you didn't live through the Holocaust, but you're living with the effects of this terrible, terrible trauma. And it's it takes someone to break the cycle of this trauma. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. And I think... By going into analysis, I was doing something about it. Mm. My parents couldn't because it was too raw. They couldn't speak about it. They did speak, and we thought very openly, my sister and I thought they spoke far more than most people's parents that we knew about. But actually, during the first lockdown for COVID, my sister, for want of a, something to do, started researching the family tree and got help doing that. And then we came across 
relative after relative after relative after relative that we didn't know about that had been murdered in the hole. Oh. And we, it was shocking mm. how much they hadn't told us. I think they just couldn't. It was, it was impossible to talk about. Mm. Then you kind of, you breathe it in. It's bequeathed to you feelings you you know I mean nobody could can ever understand it and then you know most people listening to this we've all got parents or had parents whose parents were in in the war be it the you know the first world war or the second world war and it was always and I was brought up you know my you know I had two granddads who were in the war and it was oh you know we'll stiff up a lip you don't talk you know it was just just how how it was done and when you look back now one was a firefighter the other one he fought in the first world war and was left for dead he'd lost his eye and he was 18 I mean horrendous but that who knows what effect that had on him, but also then onto my dad, who was his child, you know, and this is where you, you see it, how, and and it's something that we, I think it's only really coming through now because we've got things like podcasts and books and people are talking more openly, that we're starting to be able to lift the lid on, on some of this. Yes, I think that's right. And I think we are, I mean, it is now talked about quite a lot, isn't it, transgenerational mm. trauma? And it's become much more commonplace. It used to be talked about just in psychoanalytic, psychotherapeutic circles. But I think it's become much more commonplace that people recognise it as a thing. Exactly as you said, what on earth did your grandfather go through and what was the effect of that on his child mm. that get passed on? And so I think there's more openness to understand that these things do affect us. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes where where you've got sort of and, you know, you hear sort of down the family line or the chain or the granddad or the grandmother. Oh, well, you know, she was a different, difficult so and so. And he was oh that. But you really and don't get me wrong. It, there's no excuse for bad behavior wherever wherever it is. But that's you know, you think, oh, my goodness, they they, they wouldn't they did not have normal lives. Exactly. And, and yes, it's not making an excuse for bad behaviour, but it is trying to understand more about where that person was coming from, mm, mm. how to behave like they did. And, and maybe with understanding, we can, we can maybe challenge their behaviour a bit differently in a way that also shows them compassion, yeah. that helps them a bit. Yeah, it helped absolutely. It, that you're so right. The compassion, and also by by being more compassionate towards them, then you're more compassionate to yourself because you're like, hang on, I go into work and I make a you know right muck up of that, but actually maybe that's why this is why I'm acting like it. So going on to that, so so you sort of you go so the book. I mean, say I'm loving it. I know one of the first, and it's all sort of different places where you went. And I think it was one of the first places you went into. Was it for alcohol um, abuse or it was like a, a drug and alcohol? Drug, drug and alcohol. But what you saw, I mean, they had all their different clients, but what you saw were people working there who some of them hated their jobs, you know, and they were really taking out all their aggression and frustration on their job yes that I worked with a team so as well as working with leaders I often work with teams I do a lot with teams um, and at that time I was working with the staff team the whole staff team including the cook you know maintenance the whole team and they were fu- not all of them but some of them were furious about their job and furious about the place and one of them in particular was incandescent, um, contempt really about how poor the management was. And eventually what I realised was that many of them, it was only when eventually they told me that many of them had been, um, they were in recovery, many of them were in recovery. And I hadn't known that and I hadn't understood that. And it was only when they told me that I suddenly realised that they'd transferred their addiction on the drug or the alcohol to the workplace. And this one person who was stuck hating it but couldn't leave and eventually left with me regularly in a session, I'd say to him, it must be so difficult to place is so awful and not be able to leave and he left and it seemed like a really good thing for him the team for the organization because he was very his hatred and anger was poisonous Mm. 
working nicely for him. Mm. But it was it was fascinating that transferal of addiction. Yeah, yeah, and that uh, and obviously, like with addiction, as as you know, I heard you say, and it's you know, I've heard this said before. Addiction is sort of just the the tip of the iceberg of the problem, isn't it? It's the whole. Um, you know the pain that you're trying to numb so when the addiction is taken away that pain is still it, I mean it's the head bigger than ever so then you've got to address the pain and where does that come from and it's very hard to do that so to take it out on colleagues and to take that again you can it doesn't make life easier for anyone around him but you could understand perhaps why he did do that yes you can yes because you're trying because there'll be so many reasons for the addiction that are so hard to confront um in a way, it's easier to be just furious with your current workplace. Yeah. I was going to say your current circumstances, and it might include your current circumstances, but if you're furious with work, I mean, hugely furious with work, you might also be protecting your private life without realising you're doing it. So maybe you're managing to keep a relationship going in your private life successfully by keeping your rage for work. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't work. No, <laughs> it doesn't. Relationship. But it, I mean, it's fascinating because you know, I would imagine lots of people listening to this. You know, we've all we all know someone in a workplace or have known somebody in a workplace, and that person. And often, there it's when they get into the uh, into the sort of leadership roles because, and so because then their behaviour has such an impact on everyone else. But we see them, and they're they're not right for the job they're not happy they're not they're not they're not good at their jobs and I think I you you tell me but surely you have to love to be good at your job I know you don't have to love it but when you're sort of causing misery around you it's normally a sign that you're not enjoying your job um and you see this in and so you are dealing with leaders and why is it Kevin why do you think that there are so many people that they go into these positions and they're they're sort of on I mean they're just on completely the wrong path but they will stay in that in that position for years and years and years Oh, it's a very good question. I I don't think I can generalise about why, because there'll be so many different reasons for different people. But I think there might be things like people have been ingrained to think because it's hard and you're not meant to enjoy it. That kind of puritanical vision of you get up in the morning, you slog, you work, you're not meant to enjoy it. I've had coaching clients saying the opposite to me with great guilt, saying, but I love my job. I mean, how can that be okay? I, I wake up loving, really looking forward to it. Well, that can't be right because they've been taught that, you know, it's hard bloody graft. Mm. So I think sometimes people stay because they think, well, this is how it's meant to be. Mm. It's meant to be really tough. Or they might think, I don't deserve something better. And that might be unconscious. That they're they've got very low self-esteem and they're just thinking, this is my lot, you know, this is what I deserve. It we'll all do things for different reasons, or they might somehow keep hoping that soon it's gonna be okay, and they stay hoping that soon it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And why do you think in sort of bigger organizations, like with I mean, obviously a leader, how I mean I've never been a leader, um, you know, I've never been a manager, and I admire anyone who is, but because your work is a lot to do with leaders and how I understand it, a good leader is somebody who makes people around them feel like they can be the best that they can be and that they, I mean, really, the leader doesn't think about themselves at all. It's it's more about, I mean, of course, they might when they go home and chat with their husband and wife, but when they're in that workplace, it's all about everyone else because as long as that that's that's the job, by if you've got, you know, hundreds of people working for you, as long as they're all doing okay, then actually that's a good reflection on you. It's not really about you, but we see so often, I mean, my goodness, you could, I've heard you talk about it even before what we see in our government and, you know, so you see, we all see it everywhere. Where it turns into these leaders, it's really an ego. It's it's all about them, and it's the complete opposite. But yet they're in these great big positions, and that could be very high up in the government, or it could be as a, as your line manager, or it could be as you know anyone. But you see them. How do these people? I mean, and then you see organisations, and they they do allow it to go on that they stay in these positions. Um, and I've heard of these examples in so many different. I think they say you can go private sector, public sector, wherever. 
How is this? How does this happen, Gabriella? How does this happen, and why does this happen? You mean why do organisations let them stay there, and yes. why do they? Yeah, uh, yeah. What well, I mean, a what? Obviously, yes. Why do they? Why do they let them stay there? I think sometimes they let them stay there. But I, well, let me go back a step. I think we've gone really wrong with how we think about the workplace and how we think about leadership. And I absolutely agree with you that leaders first and foremost, need to be enabling other people to do their work as best they can. That means creating the right culture. That means creating some psychological safety. That means paying attention to all the different nuanced things that people are bringing with them to work and giving it time and space. It means checking in with your staff, not just having agendaed meetings, but actually seeing how people really are. I think it does also mean paying a lot of attention to yourself because you've got to check in with how you are as a leader and what's going on with you and notice when you're getting grumpy or frazzled or whatever. But it isn't just about an ego thing of, well, I've got to shine and bugger everybody else. Exactly as you say, that's that's not the, the massive point. But I think we don't think of leadership like that. We certainly don't think of leadership of, as learning about to take human nature very seriously and learning about human nature when's that on the leadership course we do kind of the myers-briggs or whatever else and nothing wrong with myers-briggs at all they they all have a purpose but it's a limited purpose it doesn't go deep and we're not interested in going deep and i think that's part of the problem and that's part of the reason why these people just stay in the organisation, because they they set their minds on other forms of success. And organisations are fixated on other forms of success, efficiency, performance, productivity. The fact is, if people are happy at work and thriving and psychologically safe enough, their performance and productivity will be good. But we are thinking we've just got to, you know, so an, a, a meeting is quick, get through the agenda. Never mind about how is anybody. You don't have time for that. You're focused on the agenda. Actually, if you spent more time as a leader thinking about your people, you'd save time later when they're going wrong or they're leaving and you've got to madly recruit again. You'd, you'd say it's about reprioritizing the time. So I think that's, that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's the bigger picture, I think, about why people are being kept on when they're not really doing a very good job, because we haven't thought about what really is a good job and how we need to really take human nature seriously. Oh, no, it completely answers the question, I think, because actually what that leads on to um, is... It, when you were thinking, uh, saying that, I think, and forgive me, I'm not an expert, I just find this all very fascinating. It boils down to self-awareness, really, doesn't it? If we are all self-aware, and it, it and it goes both ways. One, if you're a leader, but two, if you're an employee and how you go in and how you cope with these difficult people. And I think was her name Rachel. I know she, that you talk about in your book. Now, she, I mean, I know they aren't really their names, but we're, we're correct. Um, she, did she work in a law firm? Was it a law firm? I missed, I, but she she had a she had a big job. She had. Don't worry, well, don't worry. I, it doesn't. I mean, Rachel, who well, worked, she had a big job. That's right. I think it was law. Firm. It wasn't law. It was. But she basically she had a team, and but she had she had a difficult childhood. She had parents. She was sent off to boarding school, and she kind of spent a lot of her time wanting to fit in with her parents, and was still as a grown up trying to going on holiday with her parents a lot but actually they weren't that close but she was still trying to fit in but she does so she had on paper an excellent job and she had a team she had a team of people but she was going into work and she was feeling and and this is what you talk about and I find this fascinating we take our attachment styles into work so she oh so she was going in and she actually was repeating what she was doing with her parents even though she was a leader and she was trying to fit in so there was a group of um cool people that she thought were cool going out for drinks and she didn't get to go there but then she had uh, in her team there was somebody that felt a bit needy there was someone who 
flirted with her, you know, and she was actually, and she found that person easier. And I mean, and and she was actually quite anxious coming to your meetings. I'm going to let you talk, Corinne. I promise you, Gary. But I should say, and then when you were just start, when you started to speak to her, then at the end, and she you seem to be making a breakthrough. She stopped coming before she could carry on. So if we go back on that, so she came to you, and you could see basically that she was just taking on too much responsibility. She wasn't responsible for all these people's lives in a way that she was taking it on. Yes, exactly that. And she had tried. I'd say, yeah, she tried to fit in with her parents, but more than that, she was constantly trying to find their approval. She's still looking for their approval. Um, and she was, and she was very insecure. So she wasn't securely attached to her parents, and she wasn't securely attached to anybody in her life. Um, and she was insecure in her workplace. So she wanted to be part of the cool group. She wanted everyone to like her. That's always a bit of a disaster as a leader mm. to be desperate to be liked because you won't always be liked. So she took on too much and it drove her a bit nuts like the needy person she'd spent hours with but very irritated why did she have to do that the the flirty person she really liked because he made her feel a bit better about herself um and one person because this person endlessly about very lonely and sad weekends and she couldn't bear it and I was like, but why? And she said, I don't know what to do about it. And I said, why do you have to do anything about it? You're not responsible for your team's private lives. And she was like, yeah, but you advocate caring about people. Why wouldn't I care? So she didn't get the difference between care and responsibility and boundaries, you know, boundaries as their manager. And she never became a wonderful, fantastic leader of people but she got much better at it she started to pay attention to them think about who they were individually think about why the needy guy was needed d and give him more time because he needed that he needed time with her in a way someone else didn't need and actually it was fine if she allowed it instead of getting irritated and she started not taking responsibility for the, the woman she felt was sad. And then she could listen without it being overbearing, over you know, overwhelming her. But then when she was really making progress, she suddenly thought she decided she'd done it. She'd done enough. And I tried to gently encourage her to stay. But no, she'd, she was ready. She, she thought she'd, she'd done what she came for. And off she went. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm never going to make someone stay. Obviously, I can't. No. I couldn't even try to. Um, and then she got in touch sometime later and said, you know, things still weren't great at work and I still couldn't join in with those, that group of people and I still fed up with my boss and I've left. And I thought it was so sad somehow. It's mm. what she when things were bad. She'd have a bit of a breakthrough, she'd work at it, and then when it got a bit too difficult, she upped and went. Mm, and again, you hear that. I mean, because that's the thing, isn't it, with, with therapy? And I've, you know, I've had lots of therapy, and I, I love it, and I hope I have it forever, to be honest, um, because I just think, I'm, I mean, it just has helped me so much. But also, that is the myth, isn't it, where you think you're going to go in and I'll come and see you, Gabrielle, and you're going to fix me. But the truth is, we the only people who can ever fix us are ourselves. And changing behaviour patterns is so hard. I mean, it's so hard. It's so hard. And and if you, when you say they're insecure, I mean, I think so many people can relate to that. And even, you know, whatever age we're in, our 40s, 50s, maybe older... It, and I know it's too big a subject to talk about now, but if somebody's listening, insecure, do you know what? I feel insecure. I go into workplace and I have to deal with a difficult boss and I feel I feel really insecure with it. What would be your first advice to that person to how they deal with these difficult people and stop themselves feeling, letting that person's misery come onto them? My advice would be to think about what that person is triggering for you. Let your mind wander and think about what does this remind me of 
And if, for instance, it reminds you of your older brother who would undermine you when you were a child or a teacher or a parent or whatever it is, that can be helpful because then you can think, oh, hang on a minute. Yeah, this is just like my brother used to be. No wonder I feel so bad when my boss behaves like this. But actually, it's not my boss, my brother. It's my boss. And somehow that can help you not to get quite as caught in it. If you can recognise what button it's pushing, and then you can think, okay, I'm not a child anymore, not at home, I'm not defenceless, I'm a grown-up, the boss can behave like that and I don't have to let it get inside me in the way it did. So there, that's one thing. And another thing is actually to think, are there ways in which you can say something to the boss that will stop them a bit in their track. You know, it, even if it's something like saying, I find it really difficult when you say that. You can't, it's not easy and not helpful usually to say, don't say that. But it, it can be helpful to say, I find it difficult. Mm. And some bosses won't care. And that then that's been a complete waste of time and effort. But many will care. And many will stop and say, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. I, you know, I, I didn't mean for you to find that difficult. And that might help them to change a bit how they react, how they communicate with you. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose as well, it's always building your, and I think it's so difficult, especially with women and especially with women, dare I say it, but, you know, we've had children and we've got parents and whatever, and it's very hard to keep any sense of yourself. I mean, especially if you didn't have it before the children, which I'm not sure I did deep down, but, you know, it's very hard. And and now is the time that to, it's like building a real sense of self. Hang on, look, we've been, we have children been through difficult times, look at what you've been through, but just make, look, come on, you as Gabriella, I can you know, I can do this. You don't need the approval of the boss. You don't need to fix other people. It's like, be your own person. And that's extremely hard to do, isn't it? It's extremely hard to do. And I'm sure you're right that women who, you know, that kind of time when women are looking after children and parents, ageing parents might be doing both at the same time. And to keep hold of your sense of self during all of that, um, must be really hard but I think you're absolutely right to try and be telling yourself hang on a minute I don't you know this is work and of course I bring my whole self here and of course it affects me deeply but I don't have to seek the approval of everybody at work or whatever it is I can often people are very frightened of conflict and they don't say a wrong word but actually conflict I, I don't mean we should now all go into work and stop fisticuffs or swearing at everybody or what having <laughs> tantrums I don't mean that at all but sometimes we, we can say actually I don't, you know I, I don't like that or, or that I, I find that annoying or you know that gets up my that puts my back up or whatever those aren't awful things to say mm. and sometimes people will find they can say a bit more than they thought they could so the other bit of advice I have to encourage more of an atmosphere among your peers to actually say how you feel. It might be, you know, I don't, I find these meetings hard. We have to be quite as competitive with each other. Whatever it is, that can help other people to set a tone. Somebody else might say, yeah, me too, I find this hard. Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah, and then again, you don't feel like you're just the only person and people listening and, and good leaders will take that into consideration if this is what the culture is creating. Oh, Gabrielle, I could, oh, I could go on for a long time. I could. So, <laughs> now, so to be continued, I mean, your work is just so fascinating. What would, what would you like to do next? You know, is there anything, I'm presumably just, and carry on and with your lovely, amazing book as well, because um, yeah, you're doing such good work. Thank you very much. Well, what I wanted to do, I realised by the time I got to got to this version of the book, and it took me a very long time, I wanted to have a small little contribution to trying to improve the workplace. Because it we spend a lot of time at work, it wreaks such damage and misery on a lot of people. And I wanted to pay a tiny play a tiny role in 
making our workplaces more humane places that we thrive in. So I still want to do that, have a little bit of influence where I can. That's something I really want to do. I want to carry on with my consultancy. I love it. And I want to carry on writing because I grew to love, really love writing, which surprised me. It got you back to being that seven-year-old girl. I mean, how lovely, how it, it was there all along. And Gabrielle, so for your acknowledgements, who would you like to thank who helped you along the way? I have to start with my psychoanalyst who, you know, I wouldn't be who I am without the work I did in psychoanalysis over many years. And I would never have written this book and I would never be able to do the work that I do in the way that I do it without having a very thorough and careful and compassionate and tough analysis. So I'm hugely grateful and want to hugely acknowledge my psychoanalyst. And I also want to acknowledge mentors. I had, well, I, I went to a different psychoanalyst to get consultancy about psychoanalytic thinking and that was Mike Brearley who also was captain of England cricket a long time ago wow brilliant on leadership and he's brilliant on psychoanalysis and he's an absolutely lovely man and he has consulted to me and he and we've kept in touch and he's really helped me on the way and helped me hugely with the book I also had a writing mentor when I got serious about writing, Wayne Milstead. Um, tragically, Wayne just died. Mm, sorry. And I, you know, really, really want to acknowledge him. He, mm. Wayne taught me to write. Right. Yeah, so huge and appreciation to Wayne and huge sadness mm. that he died. And then uh, lastly, I want to thank my parents who, you know, did their best. They, they, it was difficult. They did their best. And my mum loved stories, loved literature. She really inculcated that in me. My dad also, they, as I said before, there were always books at home. So that was a huge gift. They, they were very keen on literature, culture, music partly their central european roots so i mean god gabrielle you're so equipped to answer the last the final part of this so tips and advice so for, okay so two things one first of all if someone's listening to this and they are in a job and they're they've got a company and for whatever reason they feel they can't leave they've got a mortgage they've got it's okay but they go into work and there's a difficult person or several difficult people and they're and it's getting to them and they're and they're really and they're feeling increasingly trapped what would you say to that person if that person is feeling increasingly trapped but can't leave i would say to try various things like can you is there a way that you can shift teams, perhaps, so you're not with all the people that you're finding so difficult? So there might be moves you can make within the organisation. If you can't do that, what is it about each of those people you find so difficult? Really try and work out what it is and how do you let them look into you? Do you let them bother you? Because where we feel we've got a bit of control, a bit of agency... That helps. So if we can work out what is it that I let happen, you know, I know that I find that person really difficult. So why do I go and spend half an hour talking to them first thing in the morning? What the hell am I doing? Or, or why do I agree to go out for lunch? I don't want to have lunch with that person. Don't have lunch with that person. Don't go and sit with them in the morning. You know, work out the things, the ways in which you're, you might be letting something make it worse for you and change the bit you could change which is your response mm. and if it is a boss or somebody like that that you know that makes you feel bad really know that it's that it's it's very easier said than done but it really is a lot to do with that person it, it's your own thing which why like you say why are they getting to you so much but also know it's not you know their job is to make you feel better than what they do yes absolutely Absolutely. And it, it might well be that person. It's important to 
recognize that and not just keep letting it undermine you that's such good advice and so and for somebody who's listening to this I mean you've had a fabulous next chapter and look at that I mean your next chapter really took you to where you were supposed to be because a it took you back to your writing which there you were at seven something you loved doing as a child and b the fascination and also understanding everything that your mum and dad went through and perhaps why your mum suffered as she did but this has put all of that to such a, a fabulous you know it's turned it into something really really worthwhile and special which I think is is the best you can ever do I think in this situation so what would you say to somebody because I've heard you talk about this as well and there is a it is a, a word at the moment isn't it you know, find your purpose and that can put a lot of pressure on people it's like oh we haven't got my purpose and you know what's it but it's not you don't see it like that do you you see if if you feel like some if somebody is listening to this and they feel what they're doing is really quite empty it's okay but they're just trotting along in life but they feel they want to be doing more in life but then like they get a bit bogged down thinking I've got to find my purpose what would you say to that person to how do they find more fulfillment in their life I find how you phrase that now more fulfillment a much better way of putting it I, I must admit I'm slightly suspect of the find my purpose thing um, as if one's all, all there for us all and we've just got to find it. I don't know. I, I'm a bit suspicious. But I think we, for me, it's much more about fulfilment and meaning, having meaning in our life. So if we can't do, if work is about paying the mortgage and the bills and ticking over and it's okay, but it's not great, what else might give you more fulfilment, more meaning in your life? And I would encourage people to try and do a bit of that. If you don't get the um, the connection with people that you really need in your life, if you're not getting that at work, where else could you get it? You want some creativity in your life and you're not getting that at work. Where else can you get it? Can you join a choir? You know, it's those things. For me, that makes much more sense than find your purpose whatever that may be mm. I don't really understand that but and it also what can you do differently at work that will give you more of what you want you know if you're not getting supported by your boss what else can you find support what else can you do that makes that job more fulfilling and what else can you do in your life whether it be Wednesday evening is for you your time whatever it is how you can get a bit more fulfillment in your life and just finally, for somebody who does know what, I mean, they say they think, do you know what, I actually genuinely don't want to do this anymore. And I want to do X. I want to, you know, go off and work in interiors. I always say that. Or, but you know, go off and work and do something like that. But they, oh, come on. I, you know, I'm in my 40s or I'm in my 50s. I'm, I can't do that. That's ridiculous. I'm That's stupid. I can't do that. What would you say to that person? I would say I understand the anxiety about it, but I would say, try and stop holding yourself back and maybe it's always been a pattern that you've held yourself back and if not now when which was the saying by a famous rabbi thousands of years ago and I've forgotten who but if not now when yeah um, I was 65 when my book was published in hardback wow. just come out paperback and I'm 66 you know and of course I'm very privileged because I'm of the age I am, I no longer need to worry so much about earnings. So I'm enormously privileged in that way. But, you know, when I was whatever age, massively younger, I took a dive when I did really need to earn money and I changed my career. And we won't all do that and it won't be for all of us, but there is something about knowing that you gave it a try. Try and get the support that you think you need. But I don't think you can ever dot all the T's and cross all got all the I's and cross all the T's before you take a plunge. At some point, you have to plunge. Yeah. And also, you, and I think it's lovely, the title of your podcast, The Next Chapter. And I think that's something really important to keep in mind. It's the next chapter. It's not the last chapter. It's not, this is it forever now, so I don't start it, because what if it isn't as perfect as I thought? It's the next chapter. It's an experiment. Yeah. And that brings the growth. And, and just t and also you can experiment, can't you? You can just try a little bit if you, you know, if you want to go into catering or, you know, you just 
do, do hold some nice dinner parties for your friends or whatever that may be or you know just those tiny it doesn't have to be you leave a whole job and start a new job but just start it just start it just start it and exactly as you say I think start it with little little ways of experimenting to see whether this really is what you thought it was and whether you would like it Gabrielle it has been a joy to talk to you I could talk to you for hours it's just amazing thank you for being such a fascinating and fabulous guest on the next chapter thank you so much for having me I've loved talking to you thank you so there you are what did you think of that oh it's really made me think I can tell you it's so easy isn't it when we go to work that we slip into ways where we just don't even realize I mean it's such a big question isn't it why are we the way we are and if we're doing a job we really don't like is it because deep down even unconsciously it's all because we think we don't deserve any better well this is a very big question indeed now if you want to learn more than Gabriella the link to her book and work is in the show notes you can of course keep up to date with me and my books at elliebarkerwrites.com I'd so love to hear from you and if this conversation or any of the others has sparked something with you well do you know I just love to know so i'll be back next week but in the meantime keep thinking what is it that's stopping you from doing something you love i know you can do it and gabriella does too speak soon